Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Podcast, my new free podcast dedicated to translating Trump. We've got a great show lined up for you today. I'll talk with one of the best legal minds in the country, Alan Dershowitz, about the Mueller investigation and what I think may be, well, if not a witch hunt, uh, not a fishing expedition, maybe a hunting expedition, out to get President Trump. Later on, I continue my exclusive conversation with Steve Wynn, and then class is in. Yeah, we're in session with Joel Farkas. He gives us a primer on Geopolitics 101 and what the true motivation is behind the actions of Russia, China, North Korea, and other countries that threaten the safety of the world. But first, I have a few thoughts to share on big political stories of the week. All right, we're in the middle of this discussion about uh, NOCO, North Korea, um, the fire and fury comments of the president, uh, lots of reaction on the Hill. Uh, and uh, what's going to happen? Answer to that question, I don't know. But I would put the odds of something happening uh, now at about 40%. That went from, in my mind, from about 20% to 40%. Uh, Young man, Chris Beach, where do you put the odds? Just uh, I'm curious in your head. I might put them at 50-50 now. Really? Really? Uh, I mean, I think this president has shown willingness in Syria to act when he needed to. I don't know. I, I mean, I say 50-50 of some sort of military or covert action, not all-out war. Uh, I put that, obviously, as a, a lot slimmer percentage, but I think there's going to be some sort of action. Nothing that would precipitate 50-50, but not uh, something that would precipitate then a counter-reaction by North Korea where they obliterate Seoul or or send rockets and, and weapons or men uh, into South Korea. That's what you're saying. You don't right. Think I don't that think that would happen. I just don't know what you do to North Korea that gives you an assurance that they will not react in that way. I mean, let's suppose you've got an isolated uh, a field here of Guam. As we speak, uh, the, the Secretary of State's on his way to Guam. Uh, they have the North Koreans threatened Guam or that they would go to Guam. But, you know, what's to guarantee that that's contained? Um, if they launch something at Guam, we shoot it out of the air, and then we then we do what? You know, what is the covert thing we do? Assassinate one of his brothers? Uh, assassinate him? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying these things are impossible, but I'm saying I th- would think it would be a very hard bet to make that you could do that and not and and have assurance or confidence that uh you know they wouldn't retaliate in some um in some violent uh, and terribly destructive way. Well, let me let me ask you from the other perspective okay. if if North Korea did something like that shot something at Guam, don't you think that we would have to act in some form? We wouldn't just shoot down the missile and say, "Okay, that's that." Yeah, I just don't know what that is. I just don't know what that is. Uh, you know, they have, you know, they have put all their resources into their weapons development. They don't put it in their people. Their people are are smaller and thinner and less healthy than the South Koreans. The same stock. We all know that. They don't feed their people. Uh, they harvest them. Um, uh, it's it's all about nuclear weapons. They have kind of one answer to everything. We will obliterate you, so that that in, a, in, a, in an odd way limits the response you can make to them. Uh, it's not you know it's not World War One where they take twelve feet of trench, right? Uh, you know UK twelve feet, they take twelve feet. 
we do this line, they do that line. They only have these big lines. Uh, and uh, again, how do you act? Should we? Yeah, we should. But I don't know what that is. I don't know what that action is that we would take um, that would assure us that we'd be satisfied that we did something to make us feel good about it and we got proper justice and revenge, not to belittling it, um, that wouldn't provoke uh, a, a much more serious response from them. Th- that's all. Well, I agree, I, I, I agree with you in principle. I just don't know what the fact would be. I guess the, the other, the 800-pound gorilla, or I guess you could say panda in, in the room is China. And a lot of people believe that North Korea is a puppet state of China and that it allows China to set its terms and negotiations uh, vis-a-vis the UN and the US and allows China to manipulate that situation. And chi- it's not in China's interest to lose that that bargaining chip to allow a all-out nuclear or war with between North Korea and South Korea and the U.S. or whomever. I, I mean, doesn't that play a role in it? I don't think China would let this happen. I don't think they're... I don't know. Would let what happen? Would let some sort of all-out war happen where, they, uh, where North Korea is completely destroyed. I, I just don't think in terms of... I mean, this is a good question for Joel, but in terms of geopolitics, I think China uses North Korea as a bargaining chip in all its negotiations so that... It says that oh yeah we'll be the ones to crack down on North Korea, but it never does. But it allows it so much leeway in international relations. There's some relationship here. Um, I've heard it suggested there's a relationship between the Chinese uh, military elite and some of the North Korean military elite that goes back to the Korean War. Um, there's some relationship other than this economic dependence on the part of North Korea on China. Um, but I was I was listening to our friend uh, and sometimes guest on this podcast, Gordon Chang, who was saying the UN resolution was fine, that was good. You got all these countries to weigh in, uh, and uh, the sanctions thing was okay as far as it went, but didn't go nearly far enough. You really have to push China very much harder, he's saying, uh, to get them to act here because there's real reluctance. For what reasons? I'm not sure they're entirely crystal clear what the, what those reasons are. Um, that they are so defensive of uh, of North Korea, but um, you know they keep um, uh, you know they satisfy the Chinese uh, attitude toward uh, toward Japan, toward South Korea, um, and so they're they're pleased with that. But I, I I don't know. There's this notion that well, if we just you know put enough pressure on China, uh, they'll 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 do it. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, there, there's something that continues to stop them. Maybe Chang is right, Gordon Chang, that, uh, you know, with increased pressure, they will uh, finally put the hammer on North Korea. Um, and will North Korea then listen? Um, it, it, it's different. Uh, I've been, I've been listening to a ton of commentary. These guys, uh, in North Korea sure don't think like we do. And, Folks in China don't altogether think like we do either. I, I will give the president credit. I don't know if you saw this, but someone dug up an interview he did with Tim Russert in 1999 on Meet the Press on this uh-huh. topic of North Korea. Uh-huh. And he more or less said, if we keep kicking the can down the road, sooner or later North Korea is going to have nukes pointed at us. Then yeah. what in, What position are we in to act? And, oh, no, absolutely right. I, look, I give him credit for it too, and I don't criticize him for these comments. It was interesting... Um, I saw an interview this morning with Joe Lieberman, who uh, defended the president and the president's comments. Um, a lot of the Democrats are attacking him. I, I, I don't. Um, look, you know, 
one of the things that's been said about Donald Trump is you never know what he's going to do. That can actually be an advantage <laughs> in a situation like this. He's unpredictable. You know, you poured up the Syria point. Yeah, I mean, I, if you're sitting there in North Korea, important phrase here, Chris, as a rational human being, right? Uh, big supposition, and you hear him say that, you may wonder, you may think twice about taking further action. But no, I don't criticize him for it, and um, fine, I, th- I think that's fine. And yes, he was prescient in 1999, and we have been kicking this thing down the road. It's interesting, the Tillerson play here. Uh, someone suggested this was the nice cop Tillerson and the tough cop Trump. But let's remember, too, um, that, you know, he's got a first-rate team around him with Tillerson and with Mattis and, and, and others. And um, when he made those comments from Bedminster, New Jersey, the, the fire and fury comments, he said them twice. They were rehearsed. My guess is... You know, he went over this pretty carefully. He scripted this pretty carefully. He may have talked with his uh, colleagues about this. That his new chief of staff. This. Yeah. His new chief of staff. Well, General Kelly, exactly right. Good point. Right. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, it's a developing situation for sure. It's got a lot of us on the edge of our seats. I guess what the difference between you and me is 5 10%. We average it out, it's a 45% chance of some kind of conflagration, some kind of some kind of attack. Um, I, you understand what I'm saying? I, I just don't know how you take an inch or two out of their hide without them going all in after that. You see what I'm saying? I, I do, and I'm not sure what a uh, if there's a parallel situation, you know, a similar war. I think, you know, we may... I'm not sure overestimate North Korea's military potential. I think a lot of it is yeah. uh, predicated on what China does. Um, I mean, but again, you know, Saddam and threatened reaction to the U.S. and look what shock and awe did to them. I yeah. mean, the U.S. military has power that's, I agree. that's unimaginable. I agree. I agree. Uh, but two points there. One, uh, let me concede the point. And I think, you know, you mentioned the strike on Syria. But with the strike on Syria... We pretty well knew Syria wasn't going to strike back, right. and we pretty well knew Russia wasn't going to strike back, right? Right. Pretty safe. I mean, in, in, in that in, in that regard. Um, but uh, with North Korea, it's like they have one speed. You know, they just they, all you all you see from them is these rocket launches, and so one worries one worries about that. Can they can they give a modulated response? And yeah, we could demolish them. But I, you know, I had a simple question I asked: Could we demolish them before they could uh, wreak any havoc on South Korea? And the answer to that is apparently no. Yeah, I've been there. I've been to the 38th parallel. I mean, it's it's right there. You know, you. I didn't know you've been there. When did the, you go? I I went uh, with Ed Fulner from the Heritage Foundation. I went. I don't know how many years ago, but we were in Seoul and we took the ride for what an hour. Uh, up to the border, and you stand there, and you look across, and you're looking at them, and they're looking at you. It's like you're across the street from them in in, in Arlington, Virginia, huh. and uh, it's really, it's really weird. It's really scary, uh, and um, I mean they are they are that close. And uh, I want to come back to what I just said: Is our power compared to theirs overwhelming? The answer to that is yes. Is it so overwhelming? that we could take out all their capacity before they wreak harm, real serious harm, on South Korea? I think the answer to that is likely no. 
And I think that's what experts like Gordon have said before. Yeah. Um, but it does present an interesting political situation as well. You know, if North Korea does take some action, does fire a shot towards Guam or a U.S. ship, uh, would would Democrats be on board with action? Would Democrats be on board with the president? Well, they better uh, be. They I, better I think be. that puts them in a very interesting position. I'm I'm really I, I don't count the Democrats anymore. I think they're opposed. They're resistance. They'll be opposed to whatever he does. If he says good morning, you know they're opposed. <laughs> but I'm I'm actually more interested in what the posture of the uh, South Korean president is, President Moon. Apparently, the president, our president, had a good uh, talk with him. Apparently, about an hour about this. And although I think there was a kind of peacenik quality to Moon before, kind of appeasement uh, attitude, at least that's what a lot of people were saying. Um, I think uh, he's a little more alert now, a little more worried and a little more in tune with our president. I'm I'm hypothesizing here, but that's that's what I'm reading into this. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, it's time to welcome to the show one of the sharpest legal and political minds in the country, Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School and the author of Taking the Stand, My Life in the Law. His new book, Trumped Up, How Criminalizing Politics is Dangerous to Democracy, will be published in August. Alan Dershowitz, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I tell people I went to Harvard Law School in 1968 to study Advanced my philosophy work, not to really to study the law, but jurisprudence, to study w- with uh, Lon Fuller and Paul Freund, do you remember? And um, yeah, yeah. My, my heart was stolen by Alan Dershowitz, or maybe my mind was stolen by <laughs> I guess I better shouldn't uh, well, say my I, heart I'm was stolen. I'm happy to give it back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk first about the impaneling of this uh, D.C. jury. I just read your latest uh, grand jury. I just read your latest piece on this. Why is this troubling? Well, it's not so much troubling as we have to recognize the reality that the District of Columbia is a heavily Democratic district. It has fair jurors. I remember the bar there. I practiced there. But there's no question that it gives the prosecutor an advantage, not in the grand jury, uh, because he can tell the grand jury what to do. A grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. Uh, but at the petty jury stage, if he brings to trial any members of the Trump administration, they're going to have a far more hostile reception in the District of Columbia than they would in some area that wasn't 95 to 5 percent Democratic. Uh, people who serve on juries have life experiences, and it's not that they're consciously biased in one way or another, but any jury selection expert would tell you that if you have a choice between Virginia and the District of Columbia, and you have a defendant on trial who is a member of the Trump administration, that you would prefer to have that trial in Virginia, which is more of a swing state, though it went Democratic in the last few elections, than in D.C., which is not a swing state at all, which is overwhelmingly Democrat. Now, since a grand jury was impaneled in Virginia to look into the uh, the Flynn situation, would it be normal to have impaneled a grand jury or use the same grand jury uh, in Virginia for uh, look into Russian collusion? Well, they certainly have the jurisdiction to look into Russian collusion. Grand juries have broad uh, jurisdiction. As long as there's some element of some crime that occurred within the district, they have the authority to look at it. Uh, so you could have had a grand jury in Virginia. You could have had a grand jury in New York. You could have a grand jury in Washington. 
But if I'm a prosecutor, I say to myself, Washington gives me a demographic advantage in terms of political affiliation and other factors. Uh, and I prefer to have my case in the District of Columbia. A defense attorney, given that choice, would pick the opposite. That's just the reality. And in private, every criminal defense lawyer would agree with that. But in public, you know, they're calling me names for saying that. Yeah, I, I see. I understand. Yeah. Um, my question was a little different. Once you had had the grand jury impaneled in Virginia in the, for the Flynn situation, would it have been usual, Alan Dershowitz, normal to have stayed with that grand jury for the rest of the inquiry in the Mueller case? Was his going to D.C. an unusual kind of departure uh, for in this kind of inquiry? It certainly would have been logical to stay in the to stay in Virginia. He could have extended the grand jury, could have extended its scope. He could have uh, impaneled another grand jury if the grand jury uh, expired. Uh, but going to Washington uh, is not un- unusual in the sense that some of the alleged crimes uh, took place purportedly in the White House in Washington D.C. New York would have been another place where you'd get uh, a, a diverse. Uh, jury pool, uh, heavily Democratic to be sure. Uh, nobody's going to move the case to you know West Virginia or, or, or South Carolina, obviously. But I'm not attacking um, uh, Mueller's motives. What I'm pointing out is the effect. The effect is to benefit Mueller, and that's simply a reality. And, and the fact that some people are denying it uh, just shows how far we've come that partisan politics today not only affects um, uh, moral issues, but it affects how you see facts, and 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 it results in name calling. People disagree with me; they should disagree with me. But for Maxine Waters to suddenly describe what I said as as racist is an abomination, and she shouldn't be tossing around terms like that. As I said, being black is not a license to improperly call people racist any more than being Jewish is a license to improperly call people anti-Semitic. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, you very nicely make the point that uh, Johnny Cochran, late Johnny Cochran, your colleague at, uh, at one point uh, agreed with you on, 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 these, uh, on these matters. Well, he taught me about it. And, you know, the whole industry of jury selectors, I mean, we hire jury people all the time and they make precisely the point I'm making. All right, here's a district that has the following demographic. Here's a district that doesn't. You're better off considering who your plaintiff is or who your defendant is, being in this district rather than the other. And among the factors that are considered, obviously, are in addition to political affiliation, race, educational level, economic level, all of these go into uh, the expertise of jury people who we pay a lot of money to give us this information. The people who are attacking me would put all those folks out of business and call them all racists. Okay, let's talk about reality. You, uh, you know, I have a philosophy degree, so I'm interested in the difference between appearance and reality. And I will, <laughs> I will go further than you will. I assume I've been saying when people are saying, "Is this a witch hunt?" I say, "I don't know if it's a witch hunt, but if you look at it realistically, it sure seems to me like they're out. Maybe it's not a fishing expedition, but it looks to me like a hunting expedition. You're going into D.C. Mm-hmm. The thing you just mentioned, the people he's hired are some really tough lawyers who are really tough." On uh, on the kinds of questions that uh, you know that that may be out there, it looks to me when you look at all the facts that somebody's out to get Donald Trump. Well, I mean that's why I was strongly opposed, and Justice Scalia was strongly opposed, and many civil libertarians are strongly opposed to special counsel, special prosecutors, because they have 
a hunting license or a fishing license. Uh, the analogy I like to make is Captain Ahab. He was determined to get the white whale, no matter how much it cost in terms of lives. If these guys come up empty-handed after a year and a half or two years spending tens of millions of dollars hiring all these lawyers away from the big fancy law firms, they're going to be regarded as a failure. And so they are incentivized to come up with something. That's different from an ordinary prosecutor who goes to work every day uh, and, and figures out you know, which crimes to investigate, who to go after. But these guys have targets. They've been told the purpose of this investigation is to go after the following incident, the following events, and implicitly the following people. So they're going to come up with something, whether it be a sacrificial lamb, maybe it'll be Flint, maybe it'll be somebody close to the Trump uh, administration or family, but ultimately the white whale is Trump himself. And the same thing's going on in Israel now with Netanyahu. They're trying to undo an election of Netanyahu in Israel by talking about how many cigars he got and how many bottles of champagne and conversations he had with editors of newspapers trying to turn trivial conduct into the kind of criminal conduct that will undo the democratic election. And I think we're seeing that uh, among some Democrats as well. Look, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I was devastated when she lost the election, but she lost the election. He won the electoral college. He's our president, and we shouldn't allow a prosecutor to undo that. All right, let's go to another aspect of this, which does get a lot of attention, but I'm curious to hear you on this. I don't think I have heard you. Has it surprised you what uh, the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has done? Um, he was on TV, said, oh, it's not a fishing expedition and there are real limits. But it looks to me, uh, parsing what he has said, is this, he's pretty much given uh, Mueller boundless jurisdiction. And is it, wasn't there some quick transition from a in, counterintelligence investigation to a criminal investigation that perhaps shouldn't be allowed? Well, certainly there's no doubt that the special counsel has broad power. He can not only investigate the Russian connection, but any alleged crimes growing out of that. And uh, we saw what happened with Bill Clinton. It starts with Whitewater, and it ends with Monica uh, Lewinsky. But this is a serious threat to civil liberties, and that's why I have a book coming out in about a week called Trumped Up, uh, How the Criminalization of Political Differences Endangers Democracy. And I lay out the civil liberties case, not the case for Trump, not the case for Netanyahu, the civil liberties case. I've been making this case for 25 years. When Tom DeLay was indicted, I made the case. When Senator Stevens was indicted, I made the same argument. I made the argument about Bob Menendez, a Democrat. I would be making this argument today if Hillary Clinton had been elected and the Republicans were yelling, lock her up, lock her up, look at her emails, reopen the investigation. Um, uh, I would be making exactly the same argument. The difference is today everybody who hates me would love me and everybody who loves me would hate me. That's the nature of being a civil libertarian. You let the chips fall where they may politically. You stick to your principled argument. That's what I've been doing, and I'm being attacked viciously and unfairly uh, from the hard left with name-calling and racism being thrown around and other kinds of terms, and uh, it's just not the way dialogue should occur. We're coarsening conversation in this country. We're creating greater divisions than we need to create, and it's a, a great danger to the future of this country. Look, we're facing enormous crises with North Korea, with Iran, uh, with Russia, the president ought to be allowed to govern. He was elected to govern, not to respond every day by tweets to the latest leak from um, the Justice Department. And, and, and the worst offender here uh, may have been Comey by leaking 
his memos through a law professor. This is the head of the FBI who is leaking material. He's supposed to be stopping leaks. And it's that he's participating in the process of leaking. It sent a terrible message. When did the counterintelligence investigation uh, become a criminal investigation? And, and is it true, again, I want to come back to Rod Rosenstein, that there is a definite scope of this investigation? And if there is, and it's got boundaries, what are they? I don't think the boundaries are particularly well-marked or fixed. Um, I do think that this can turn into an open-ended investigation. You know, Mueller is a, a very responsible prosecutor generally, and I think he'll try to keep it within some range. But if he comes across or his lawyers find other information, look, his lawyers are experts at looking at financial documents. And I think they're going to be subpoenaing a lot of financial documents, a lot of tax records. And then they're going to say, look, we can't ignore what we found. It's right there. So we're opening up a new investigation. I think we're going to see this investigation go on until at least the end of the Trump first term. Well, I, I, that, that's mixed news for Trump, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're unlikely to come to con- – if they go that long, they won't have a conclusion, which could lead maybe perhaps a then-Democrat Congress. We don't know. Uh, well, uh, it, it's possible, but he could come down. For example, he could indict Flint uh, soon, but continue the investigation of others. So, you know, he has a lot of discretion. Uh, in my view, too much discretion. I don't think prosecutors who are unelected – should have as much power and discretion as they do. And that's a kind of liberal civil liberties argument that I'm normally joined in by my liberal civil liberties friends, but not now. As soon as you mention the name Trump, everybody switched sides. Suddenly, all my liberal friends are pro-prosecution. They think Mueller is the greatest guy in the world. The FBI is the most wonderful institution. Everything changes when you mention the name Trump. And uh, that's how I begin my book, by saying we may need a new jurisprudence. Our founding fathers did not contemplate a Trump presidency. Uh, it's, it's, it has changed the nature of American politics. And it does cripple the presidency, if, no matter how long it lasts. I mean, and it's a huge distraction. And that's the goal. And by the way, yeah, that was sure. the goal of the Republicans when they tried to cripple the, the Clinton presidency, and they succeeded oh. in doing so by uh, a frivolous impeachment that uh, made it more difficult. So this is a bipartisan problem. The Democrats use it. The Republicans use it. I think we have to declare an armistice, and both sides have to stop using the criminal justice system to undo elected presidents and elected public officials. All right, Alan, we know you got to run. We will leave it there for today. Thank you very much. Great seeing you out there everywhere, and um, you are a thorn in the side, depending on um, who it is. Uh, that's whose side you're a thorn in. But uh, we love having you on, and... Uh, Bring back a lot of memories of my law school days and um, the confounding questions you used to ask me. Let's move on. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast will remember my interview with Dr. Alan Gelzo. He put forward the notion that America is right now more divided than at any time since the Civil War. I've been mulling this over in my mind, and I decided to ask one of the men I truly respect and admire if he thinks Dr. Gelzo is right, that man is Steve Wynn. He's the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. In this segment with Steve, I ask him about the polarization in America today and if we can recover. Take a listen. We do these segments and we get reaction. As I've told you, we've heard from senators, we've heard from CEOs, we've heard from regular folks. The things that people react to, they react to your policy recommendations. 
and your thoughts about uh, about what policy to do. They obviously react to your finance sharing of the RNC, but they really react viscerally, strongly, and in very strong agreement to your stories about growing up. I, I don't think we've ever had reaction like the reaction we got to the story about your father and the, and and the, the, Coke, French, bottle. the, the Coke bottle. Yeah. But people want to know because they think about their children and their grandchildren. I don't know what else, uh, what any other way to ask it except uh, I read I read a couple of weeks ago. A smart guy who was a friend of mine said, "We've never been more divided in this country than we are now." You referenced this earlier since the Civil War, and this may be the second most divided America has ever been. What's your advice? your judgment of that, and what's your advice to young people about it? I heard a story the other day of a guy who said he supported Trump. A friend stopped him on the road, uh, a neighbor, and said, I just want to tell you, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. This is, you know, he had no other business other than to stop this person and to say, you voted for Trump, you support Trump. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Young people you know, are sensitive to this kind of thing. It was, what's going on? You see what I'm after. I do. <clears throat> Bill, um, politics is the latest and clearest example of the potential for great disagreement and disparity between people. We've had... Uh, uh, human history that gives us every conceivable example of the disparity of opinion. Oh, pardon my dog. That's, that's fine. It's the real world. We're in the real world of Steve Wynn. We, <laughs> we could talk about differences between countries that have led to wars. Most consistently, the difference between religions that have led to slaughter and mayhem. Even today, the greatest single thing that divides people is their religious beliefs, which lead to violence. And that's been the case since the Crusades. And today, all we need to do is turn on the TV about the Mideast and terrorism. But not all religions are created equal in this regard. Some are more, may I say, aggressive and violent <clears throat> than others. And... Yes? So, today... We have a political divide in America. What seems to me at my age to be the only answer to real peace in the world, whether we're dealing on a geopolitical, multinational, international basis, or political divisions within this country, or divisions within our city, our workplace or our family. One word seems to make the pain, the suffering, and the rancor vanish, and that is R-E-S-P-C-T, respect. When human beings can rise above a moment and remind themselves that the only safe harbor the only safe harbor for interpersonal, intercountry, intergovernmental, inter 
political misery is respect. You can ignore that truth and go ahead and boil in your own sauce. You can find any number of reasons to disagree, hate another person, another country, another person, different color skin, different color, different religion. There's no, no shortage of, rash, of, of, of rationality, of rationalization for your yeah. prejudice or yeah. position. As righteous as you may feel, but if you remind yourself at moments of conflict that with, uh, with respect, you can get over it, you can manage with other people. Now, there is one exception to that. And, and I really believe in what I've just said. The only exception is when another person's belief results in them thinking they have to kill you, that you can't live. Yeah. Now, we bumped into this with this radical form of Islam. And it creates one of the real, real nightmarish truths of our time. That when someone's trying to kill you, you have to fight back. And that, that shows the low point of humanity. But there is no choice. You have to, you're entitled to fight for your own survival. You can't just let someone kill you because they think they ought to. But except for this extreme example, okay. respect is the answer to, in, in my life's experience. Okay. I think I know. Note to my producer, I think I know the music we're going to lead into this with. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Huh? Yeah. That's just what it means to Aretha Franklin, wasn't it? That's who it was. Yeah. Do, don't you think so, Bill? Yes. And I guess, you know, what? while you were talking, Steve, I was reflecting on that story I told you. A guy who stops gratuitous, not gratuitously, but for no reason other than to say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, is saying exactly what you've said. There's no respect for me and my point of view. And so I'm shunned. I'm to be avoided, right? That's what he's saying. Yeah, no respect. Uh, it, 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 the notion is, as a human being, if we look at ourselves honestly, very often <clears throat> we are wrong. We get the facts wrong. We don't see things clearly as today as we will tomorrow. Our positions change. We learn. We reform our opinions. We recognize that we have certain prejudices that have to do with personality, and we get along with certain people better than do with others. It's built into human nature. If the fact is that we ourselves recognize our own imperfections, our own frailty in intelligence, that that we are not uh, brilliant all the time, well, then we can say the same thing about the other fella. But the fact that we're wrong ourselves doesn't make us bad people. And if the guy across the street doesn't like Donald Trump, and thinks that because I like Donald Trump, there's something wrong with me, and he now decides he doesn't like me, why can't I say, look, he's got an opinion of Trump that's wrong. He isn't looking at it correctly, but that doesn't make him a bad person. 
look in the mirror, I say to myself, am I right all the time? Hell no. And if that's true, then how can I be so cocksure about my opinion when I talk to other people? Yeah. Well, let's give them the same, the same margin, the same freedom, the same flexibility we give ourselves. But you know, we don't. Yeah, that's right. We give ourselves a lot more freedom. We cut ourselves a lot more slack than we do other people. Yeah. Respect will, a little self, a little introspection will help you get to the right place, I think, in this sort of thing. Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, said, he just reminded me of it, I hadn't thought about it in 40 years. He says, when we look at the faults of others, we look through an enlarging glass, I think was the phrase. When we look at our own faults, we look through a shrinking glass. A pinhole. (laughs) A pinhole, that's it. That's it. Very interesting. All right, we have to leave it there for today. It's always a privilege to talk with Steve Wynn. We'll continue more of our interview series next week with a hilarious conversation about marriage. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's change gears. Let's talk foreign policy for a bit. Each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of American security. I am proud to say that I am a member of the American Strategy Group, a fellow, and I'm delighted that they're able to bring us these great interviews each week. To learn more and to hear the other ASG interviews, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com amstrategy. Joining us today, Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. Welcome back to the show, Joel. Thank you, Bill. Let's. You did a great outline of uh, things you've been working on and thinking about lately, and I, I love this one, the, the the quest for dominance, you call it, and different countries after different things uh, in terms of resources in order to be a dominant power, stay a dominant power, become a dominant power. You talk about Russia, Australia, China, France. Let's go through those. Uh, the first one you note is Russia for gas in Europe. Russia, through Gazprom, which is their state-owned energy company, really views themselves as a dominant supplier of natural gas to Europe. Um, they have they built pipelines. They're building them to Europe, and they're now trying to build pipelines to, to China and Southeast Asia. And they, of all the things that we hear about, and, and I started thinking about this because of how President Trump was pilloried for using the word uh, energy dominance. Um, he, he just discussed it, but, but Russia is forcing themselves upon Europe and Southeast Asia by being the premier and, in their view, the dominant supplier. Uh, that uh, uh, has a lot of implications, but um, that's really where it started. It started thinking about why, uh, why they're doing that, and we know why they're doing that, but the interesting part of, uh, of, of foreign policy is – how Western Europe and other countries, particularly individual countries in Western Europe, are viewing that and how they, they, they are considering defending themselves from being dominated. So it's a combination of Russia trying to dominate and how others are reacting to avoid being dominated. But, but we're, we're sort of helping in this uh, uh, limitation of domination, right, by our, de- our own development. Um, isn't that true? You and I have talked about this before on the show. I mean, we're, 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 we're developing our own resources and uh, therefore taking a chunk out of Russia. 
we are the United States is developing massive uh, supplies of oil, but also gas. And through those efforts, uh, United States is disrupting all of these plans of, That's the around word I the was world. Looking for. That's the word I was looking for, disrupting. We are yeah. completely disrupting the, the, uh, the plans of Russia and other countries. Europe currently is primarily supplied by Russia and Qatar. Um, when the United States produces gas, we, take, we don't obviously have a gas pipeline to Western Europe, but we liquefy it. It's called uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas. We put them on ships. Their tr- ships are traveling the world right now, being able to uh, be, being able to deliver supplies almost on a spot basis, on an instantaneous basis, all over the world. Um, Europe has another unique feature. They have a, a, a huge, huge supply of regasification plants. That um, uh, so so they're in a situation now where they can go. They meaning almost any country can purchase from any U.S. company or any other company that, that produces LNG, they can purchase this gas and disrupt the, 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 the commitment or the, uh, the, the, the shackles they have on just simply getting power from Russia. Many times we're talking about energy, we think about cars, but this, this, uh, this uh, uh, energy supply is really about power for countries. And then Western Europe and Southeast Asia have, a, have big issues with supplying enough power to, um, uh, to to run their countries and the residences and the manufacturing plants. Let's go to another place uh, less familiar in terms of discussion um, because, you know, Russia is very much on our mind. I guess not as much as it is on the Democrats' mind, but but uh, we've we've had this, some discussion of this before. But I was I was very taken with uh, your your second uh, part of the world here, Australia for lithium. Tell us what this means. Um, we obviously have heard about electric cars. Batteries are made through by lithium using lithium. Um, currently, lithium is mined in various places in the world, in South America. In, in, in other areas, but Western Australia, a, a big mining, huge mining uh, area in the world, uh, known for copper mainly, is now becoming and trying to cement their status as the dominant supplier of lithium in the world. Um, they just had a mining conference in Western Australia a week and a half ago, and there are four uh, operations in production, three more being advanced. And for the next 20 years, 20 to 30 years, they're, they're, they're describing, uh, analysts are describing Western Australia as a land grab similar to um, uh, the Middle East uh, in, in, in the 60s and 70s. Because in order to, in order to supply enough uh, uh, batteries for the proposed electric car consumption, you need lithium and and you need to make, to to have it in massive amounts. All right, you just said, and now you knew I was going to pick up on it. Proposed battery operated cars. Uh, this is a bet that we're going to need this much lithium. Is it a safe bet? You think? Um, commodities are never a safe bet. Okay. <laughs> that, uh, okay. They are never a safe bet. <laughs> But, I mean, obviously, there's a land grab. There's obviously going to be a lot of money. They're going to buy up spaces and places. What do you do? You mine lithium? Is that what you do, like copper? You mine it. Uh, you have to take it. You have to uh, put it in, 
in, in, in pond, evaporative ponds, it, it requires a massive amount of water. It requires a massive amount of water in areas where they're pretty much deserts, where there is very little water. So you go through this, that, this whole notion of, we've talked in the past about the supply chain issue for, for oil and gas. Well, there is a supply chain issue for lithium to create batteries to put in electric cars. And that's, the, that's a similar concept. But um, it, is, it is a bet. It's a very good comment. It is a very big bet. Um, and what is occurring now are the, 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 the current and the proposed manufacturers of a lot of electric cars, they now have to look to see whether or not they can, in fact, meet that kind of demand. And what happens when you have this, these land grabs, costs of mining and costs of a, of a, of a metal in demand go up. Yeah. So um, we, we just don't know. And anyone who thinks they do know and, and everyone who writes an article about how we know electric vehicles are going to dominate the world, uh, we don't know. We, we know that there are the same issues in growing an industry as there has been in any other industry. All right. Well, we have investor listeners out there with their pencils poised, and they just want to hear you say yes or no, buy or not. Go to Australia or no. not. Go. Okay. No, because most okay. of our investors aren't going to live another 40 years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's a good. What about their children and grandchildren? Okay. 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 We'll see. <laughs> is, that, is that it? I mean, we're not, we're not three years away from this revolution. Is that right? We're 10 or 20? Uh, we are uh, 20 or 30, okay. at least. Ten, in the next 10 years, um, in the next 10 years, there is no question that the demand for natural gas and oil in order to power the uh, utility operations of developed and developing countries around the world is the dominant supplier. Um, it, it, we, we hear about China being on the forefront of solar, of, 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 of batteries yeah. and things like that. Well, China just made an investment. And again, these are, not, these are things that happened in the last few weeks. China just uh, 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 financed for Pakistan two new power generating plants. One is coal-fired, one's uh, LNG-fired uh, LNG plant. What's LNG? Now, liquefied natural gas. Okay. They just financed two new power plants. It was not a wind and solar plant. It was a coal and an LNG plant. Um, so they are, if, if anyone would like to know where China is making their, their bets in the short term, uh, we, can, we can just look to Pakistan. All right. Is that, is that what you meant when you wrote here, uh, China and Southeast Asia on this outline? Yes, yes. Oh, um, that, that's where they're putting their world. money then. That's where they're putting their money. China and China, uh, in order to, to use the power to, to obtain the power they need, they are getting it from coal and LNG too because they don't produce it. Okay, okay. Uh, you have an interesting item here. I didn't know. I had no idea what you what you meant under the quest for dominance. You talk about France and the EU. Well, that's uh, that's as much as a uh, as a protection against other countries, other competitors, and, and, and maintaining French sovereignty in the EU. I, I believe that, uh, and, I, and I, you know, we, I would like to make a comment about President Trump, who gets, uh, uh, who gets written about daily, hourly, uh, minute by minute. I believe that most world leaders are emulating President Trump. 
And France is an example of a country who is protecting and uh, right now with their new administration, their sovereignty, their economic sovereignty, uh, immigration policy, and their, their, their and, and, and that's what, what, what so what France has, has, uh, has met with is, yes, they are a member of the EU, but within the EU, many other countries have tax regimes that are harming business and investment in France. Uh, the current president is taking, uh, uh, is taking note of that, and he's, and he's aggressively protecting his sovereignty. So um, while he's part of – he's recognized he's part of this European Union, but being part of the European Union is diminishing and harming the French business – the French economy and, and their jobs. Um, and, and that's what I meant by, uh, uh, by France and the EU. It's protecting themselves against others, other, other countries' um, efforts to, uh, to disrupt what's going on in their country. Well, we know about the dominance, the importance of France in the EU. Uh, is given what you just said, is there a possibility of a what do we call it a Frexit that France would leave? Since since it's being hurt or at least hampered in many ways by its presence in the EU. Um, I I can say I, I can't predict Frexits or Brexits. Um, I'm not good at, at at that kind of prediction, but I will say. That that France has um, uh, is, is making uh, efforts to do things like um, cut taxes on dividends and capital gains. They're uh, uh, proposing spending cuts on on their unemployment and uh, benefits and pensions. They are defending themselves against U.S. tech firms like Apple and Google because they're. They're, they're, they're uh, located in Ireland where they pay almost no taxes. And, and, and France is making a, a dramatic effort to go after, clamp down on those kinds of country, uh, businesses. So um, the, the, the approach they're taking is more of uh, – it's almost as if it, you're listening to Stephen Moore, who you've interviewed many times. It sounds like Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore. We want to lower taxes. We want to cut spending. And, and this is not just this is not this is a policy. The, the French finance minister, their prime minister, and their president talk about this every single week. And the interesting thing is the press how they cover them. When 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 the the French president says I'm going to clamp down on firms uh, 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 to to level the playing field, they describe it as the energetic young president's muscular approach. Well, that's a lot different than how Donald Trump is described when he says we are going to clamp down and level the playing field for trade in the United States. So I don't know that they've gotten to Brexit, uh, Frexit yet, but they are uh, emulating President Trump. You know, um, this discussion reminds me, and my my world history is not as good as my American history, but – you know, when you take these countries, these different parts of the world and their development of resources and their search for resources in other places, there is a there is a long and uh, and storied history to this, right? Wasn't Marco Polo looking, going to get spices from the Far East? And wasn't there, you know, a, a great uh, efforts to get salt and, and uh, I mean, uh, battles waged, <laughs> uh, journeys undertaken and underwritten? In order to find some resource or another at some point, so this goes on. This this continues. It, 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 I, that is 
a, a wonderful comment. New York uh, was originally, before the, the British took over New York and made it New York, it was uh, uh, taken over for the fur trade. This, is, this has been going on. When, when, when we have to, when, not when we, when a country or a company or a business has to supply a technology that is being developed or a new source, you need resources and you need the, the distribution supply of those resources. It has never changed. The difference um, uh, uh, between the United States, though, is much of what we do is by private business. Much of what other countries do are by state-owned companies, state-supported companies. And that's why economics and foreign policy get, get mixed. You bring up a very interesting point about fur. I I just bought a book about when I was a child growing up in New York. Uh, my mother had the, had the 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 luck and 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 the wit, the acuity to send us off to a, a very inexpensive. We didn't have much money, but a very good camp up in the Adirondacks. I fell in love with those Adirondack Mountains as a boy, and I just bought a book about the Adirondack Mountains and the history of the Adirondack Mountains is a history of fur trapping. It's all about the French and the English and the and the, and the Native Americans uh, battling it out over furs, over muskrats and and uh, beaver uh, and uh, and and larger animals. This was. It's funny to think of New York in that way, but that's uh, that's what it was. It was a great outpost for the fur trappers. It's how it began. Yeah, and spices and any, yeah. any other kind of de- product that was needed and demanded. This has not changed. Yeah, it's fascinating. Let us not uh, let you leave uh, this great discussion, Joel, without getting your comment on what we're in the middle of right now, the North Korea situation. Any any comment on this? A lot has been said already, a lot of it repetitious, just uh, wondering where you are. I thought what the president said was fine. Uh, someone said, well, you know, you shouldn't say that because he's so unpredictable. Sounds to me like that's a good idea uh, to say stuff like that and be unpredictable. Um, let them worry about what we might do. I touched on uh, what people say about the president earlier. Anything the president says is it, it, it's going to be uh, uh, described as unpredictable. It's going to be described as worst. He's 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 spiteful. He's ignorant. He's he goes on and on right. and on. He's incompetent. Even so when he says I good really, morning, right? Even when he says good morning. When he says good morning, he yeah. is inexperienced, incompetent. And, right. and, and spiteful, and and, and that's yeah, the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, it's irrelevant to me what the media, how the media describes uh, President Trump. Um, I uh, he he, he it, that's not relevant to me. What is relevant is what he is doing, and North Korea is really a discussion about China, and China is an adversary in a lot of economic terms around the world, President Trump is really bringing this whole issue that started with President Clinton uh, in the 1990s to allow North Korea to even get a nuclear weapon. Yeah, uh, it's, it's bringing all the players to the table, and the players in this case is China. And he has so many arrows in his quiver, he being President Trump. Um, what he says and what he's doing uh, that we just discussed it's all on the table, and that's what he's, he's run on. Everything is on the table, and I believe the uh, thoughtful people, maybe not Kim Jong-un, but, but the Chinese government, 
they will come to the table. I think he's doing a, a, a fine job. He is not supposed to have people adore him each week. He's supposed to represent the interests of the United States. He's doing a great job. Well, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I just thought top of my head, I didn't research this, but I was with uh, some, you know, Trump deniers, never Trumpers. Um, I call them Trump deniers, you know, like you know, yeah. whole earth stuff. <laughs> but I said, you know, as I recall, the campaign was about it was about three things, uh, primarily. One was about the border, and we're seeing at least a 60% reduction in illegal crossings of our border. Second was about the economy, and it sure looks like it's improving. Certainly the mark, stock market is. But more important than that, everybody who looks, looks at the stock market says, well, it just means the rich are getting richer. But hidden in that was something I, I read on Bloomberg Business News, uh, that the, 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 the Trump supporter, the high school-educated uh, white in, in America, is, uh, is facing um, job opportunities that he, they have not had in a long time and entering into the workforce. Um, and so their situation is improving. And the third thing was, you know, uh, we're going to destroy ISIS. And it looks like General Mattis and company are doing that. Not so bad. I mean, I know healthcare mess and all that. But, you know, 200 days in, that's pretty good, seems to me. Well, I'd like to touch on your comment about jobs. Um, he, he, he ran on jobs. He, what's interesting is that what the tr- Trump deniers are the people who despise him, which is, is, is a fairly uh, a vocal group. Um, they also like to tell uh, the United States and the world that the United States is at full employment, that it doesn't matter that our plummeting labor participation rate uh, is one of the lowest it's been in years. It, the way they describe they, meaning economists, they they describe unemployment being low by saying, you know what, it's what they call the U3 rate. Well, there's U4s and U5s and U6s. Those are people that are that are they call they say they describe as marginally attached, underemployed, discouraged. So they don't count them. They just say we don't count them because they don't, they're not they're not really part of the labor force. Well, you know what, uh, economists can't just change the, the, the topic because the, the, the results are different. you got to count them. These people count. And guess what? They were counted last November, and they voted for President yeah. Trump. Yeah, that's a great point. He counted them. That's right. <laughs> that's right. He counted them. You better count them, too. That's right. That is right. And the posters in the media, the posters in the media describe where the president stands. It's the same issue. They're not counting the people that you've just described. Yeah, what is the point of a poll anywhere, any, anywhere, you know, less than six months from an election anyway? And and they don't turn out to be much good either, as we saw. Joel, this would be great. We want to continue this discussion. You gave us a great outline of, of things, and we will continue to talk with you as you are available. Uh, we know about your travels and your hard work, but uh, thanks for making time with us, and thanks for your support of the American Strategy Group in this podcast. Thank you, Bill. Much, much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, that's the show, folks. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that you get every podcast episode the minute it comes out. Talk to you next week.